0: This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 58 is something like, What is the relationship between facts and values? And we read G.E. Moore's Principia Ethica, Chapter 1 from 1903, Charles Leslie Stevenson's essay, The Emotive Meaning of Ethical Terms from 1937, and Chapters 1 through 3 of Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue from 1981. And uh, get more information about those texts, join a discussion of this episode, and listen to lots more stuff at PartiallyExaminedLife.com. This is Mark linton speaking to you from
1: Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin being incoherent in his post-Enlightenment
2: haze in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Alwan emoting from Boston, Massachusetts.
3: This is Dylan Casey, naturally ethical in Middleton, Wisconsin.
0: (laughs) (sighs) Very nice. Naturally
2: ethical, I like that.
0: Hey, if you have not looked at the website recently, PartiallyExaminedLife.com, it has a huge makeover. It looks awesome. Woo! Oot. With the new design, I'm sure you'll see more articles by each of the other podcasters, as well as by our many wonderful guest bloggers. Yeah.
3: I've actually been a little bit mad at myself because there have been a couple of good opportunities. This, have you guys paid any attention to this thing with Krauss and his book about um, saying
0: philosophy is dead? It's yeah. Kind of the yeah. buzz thing going. I know this is something that Wes has blogged on a few times of Stephen Hawking and other folks who, you know, it seems like it's usually scientists and they're dissing primarily metaphysics. That if you're going to be figuring out what the nature of space and time are now, yeah, you do science. So philosophy has nothing to say about that. Well, we'll get to that. I mean, we already had the one on physics. There's plenty more that philosophers do have to say on that kind of thing. But it is timely to me as I'm starting to, even the stuff we read this week, which is not really ethics, it's meta-ethics, right? It's about the foundations of ethics, right? The question I had posed was, what's the relationship between facts and values? So it's an ontological question. It's a metaphysical question. What kind of stuff is there in your world that would allow values to be there, that would allow ethics to be possible? Some of the stuff that McIntyre, say, was saying, at least when we get a little farther into the book, as we will for next episode, had to do with uh, that the problem is their metaphysical assumptions, that there was something in he is a big Aristotle fan, which is why his book After Virtue has the picture of, what, Athena on it, that every single book about classics has the same damn picture (laughs) of Athena side view head with her big helmet on, leaning on a staff. In there, he cites Aristotle's ethics and politics as containing some insights that we've now lost in the modern age, and that's really his whole problem with what he considers the failure of ethics, including all the folks that we have read, the utilitarians and Kant's. He talks a little about Nietzsche as well, even though Nietzsche is also, like Aristotle, a virtue ethics guy, so he's sort of on the right track. But still, there were things about Nietzsche himself is reacting to guys like Kant and Mill. And so if those guys made a mistake in rejecting this edifice that Aristotle created, which you really can't separate out his ethical thoughts which all have to do with human potential, having a sort of correct way in which to grow, and that is what virtue is. You can't separate that from his metaphysical conceptions, from his views of what an organism is. So we're going to be reading some of that soon. It's gotten me in the mode of diving a little farther in some of our future episodes into some of these metaphysical issues. One could start a philosophy class talking about them, but I think it's much more difficult. When I was looking through Aristotle a little this week to prep for a couple episodes from now... There's a lot of stuff that just jumps out at you as being archaic. And isn't it great that we've progressed beyond this? So if you were approaching it, like, let's do metaphysics first, you might think either we're just doing history. So, you know, we don't care how wrong these pre-Socratics are. We're just going to, for scholarship purposes, figure out what they say. Or you just go right to the modern stuff, which is mostly science and not philosophy. Was that the summary? Are we in the summary mode? That was a transition. I think that you have to be
3: really careful about, especially for someone like Aristotle, of having a kind of simplistic knee-jerk reaction about things that he said that seem or are wrong in a particular way and not pay attention to the way they relate to one another. There just are often a lot of cases where their mistakes are as fruitful as the things that seem right about about it. And I think that you have to also... When you read original works of any sort, whether they're old or new, you have to come at them with a kind of generosity, because the fact is, it's much easier to be a critic than it is to be somebody who's coming up with something on their own. If it's worth your time, it's worth trying to sort sort out in itself.
0: Right. Even if it was just for historical purposes, Aristotle was so influential that, of course, you need to figure out his language in order to understand a lot of stuff that came after. So there's plenty of reasons we can get into when we actually talk about him.
3: I think we could also have a long discussion about what we mean by for historical purposes. I know that that's a big thread through things.
0: We don't just read
2: Aristotle or the pre-Socratics for historical purposes. There are insights there, and there are still people willing to defend those insights.
0: Well, but even if it is history, I mean, and this is again on topic for McIntyre. So McIntyre has an approach that's a little like Foucault's that we read recently, who remember Foucault is actually following in the footsteps of Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morals, that he's giving this history of the evolution of ethical concepts. When we set up this episode, his was the book we wanted to read, which is why we're doing a little bit of it this time. In the next episode, we're actually going to get to his positive account of how he thinks Aristotle can be revived for the modern world. But today is kind of the negative. And when we got into it, I felt like his method is very broad strokes, kind of like us discussing some of these figures where he maybe pulls out a quote or two, but in one chapter is taking three or four figures And talking about the historical progression between them and sort of what that means for, in this case, the breakdown of traditional moral vocabularies and why things don't make sense now. Why uh, we're in the situation we are now where everything is driven toward relativism or nihilism or the kind of moral debates that we see now. So he, for one, sees going through the history as not only a part of diagnosing the problem like that, but also in coming up with the solution. So the second part of the book, you know, he goes through... Homeric virtues and then virtues as Aristotle considered them and the other Greeks considered them and then in the Middle Ages and gets the whole picture out there and seems to think that knowing that story then puts you in a great position to actually, you know, it's not even just a matter of we can learn from the various insights that were sprinkled through the past to then come up with a good theory now, but a theory that disregards the history, that disregards the Genesis, I think he thinks is a fundamental philosophical mistake. And that was the connection that we had mentioned between him and Wittgenstein, who was somebody he was very aware of.
2: And he thinks that the discussion of some of this history can tell us how and why some of these people were wrong. So for instance, with Moore, for Moore's most fundamental argument, he just says it's obviously wrong and doesn't really give a philosophical argument.
0: (laughs) Yes. So, that forced us to have to put some of that into the syllabus here.
1: So, either what he has to say in the second half of the book is so exciting, we should just skip what we read for, or perhaps we should explain why we read the first chapter of Principia Ethica and that ridiculous article by Stevenson in order to set up McIntyre's sweeping and devastating critique of 20th century moral philosophy.
2: Maybe we could give a very brief overview of what we read in these three chapters of McIntyre and then dovetail into more detailed conversations of the Stevenson and Moore readings.
1: I was thinking you could probably summarize the two articles pretty quickly before you did that, but...
2: I want to get at why we were motivated to read those more and... Okay, all right. Stevenson articles, which is... So McIntyre's argument is that there's this grave disorder in modern moral language that basically we use moral language, but there's no substance to it. And he wants to give a history of why this is so. His big argument is going to be that something called emotivism has taken over and is culturally accepted and implicit in a lot of moral theories, even though the proponents of those theories don't realize it. The emotivist idea under McIntyre's summary is just that evaluative expressions, including moral judgments, are not descriptive statements that have truth values. They're not about the world in any way. They're really prescriptive or they're a way of endorsing something or saying, I like this and you should too, or not you should too, but more like an imperative. You like this too. So what's interesting is that he's going to trace this to G.E. Moore's notion that the good is this indefinable non-natural property, which is sort of an extension of what we've discussed with Hume, where Moore's basic argument is that evaluative judgments or our concept of the good can't be reduced to any descriptive statements about the natural world, including, for instance, we can't just say that the good is the pleasant. So the way the pleasant is this natural term or that the good is the welfare of the greatest number, as in utilitarianism or something like that. Moore gives an argument for that, which we'll discuss. But McIntyre's idea is that because Moore's argument was generally accepted, people sort of lost faith that there was any legitimacy to moral language. So Moore is a moral realist. He believes that ethical judgments have truth values and that they say something about the world. But to some, his theory will seem to demand so much that we believe in these non-natural Properties that we might just become skeptics altogether about moral language and say, well, it really isn't about the world and moral judgments really don't have truth values. They're not descriptive. They're just about our preferences in some sense. And so that's the connection between Moore and emotivism that McIntyre sketches.
1: It's called emotivism because, as Stevenson puts it, a moral statement is really an attempt to convince the other person to agree with your point of view about what is good it's not about your intuition that a thing is good it's that moral or ethical statements are intended to change other people's opinions or elicit reactions from them and that's why you distinguish it from intuitionism
2: Moral judgments are something like expressions of emotion, even though they're not exactly that.
0: Right. It's not just that I have an opinion about some matter of fact in the world and I'm trying to convince you of it. And so they're persuasive in that way. It's that they're not about something in the world at all. They're really about my own feelings about this and I want to spread that to you. And so the closest if we're going to translate this is good into something else, it's something like we like this. But that's not going to capture it because why is that supposed to persuade me? So it's got this subtle emotional connotation. It's like anything you call good is going to sound nice. It's like calling something murder as opposed to killing, that murder has this evaluative component built into it. So the word good is different than saying I like it or we like it, in which case, well, fine, you like it. I don't give a crap. No, it's trying to snare you in as well.
3: So it would be a statement of value, but that has utterly no correspondence I guess, with the world, or maybe better, it has only correspondence with your idiosyncratic opinion.
0: Well, your feelings, yes. Opinion just still sounds like it could be an opinion about Uh something, but it's not about anything. It's just an expression. So it's just like saying, yay! But
2: it's not enough for Stevenson that it be an expression of your particular preference. It's not a descriptive statement about, hey, I prefer this, or, hey, Mm -hmm. this is what the group prefers, this is what society prefers, That would be to miss the character of the emotive that Stevenson is trying to get at. What's important is that it's prescriptive in some sense. It commends. So it says, I do like this, do so as well. Or there's an imperative aspect to it. So it can't simply be, I'm describing my own preferences. It has to be more than that. It has to be an exhortation for you to like as well.
3: One thing that was interesting to me when I was reading stevenson and Moore on this was that at least in what we read which i mean admittedly was a small piece of what they had written neither of them took the next step down the road which would be that all moral disagreements are fundamentally political
0: which is mcintyre's conclusion of the way things are now right Mm -hmm. because moore's was really the logical consequent i think of all this previous thought and yet the way that it was enacted and stevenson was actually a student of moore's That the negative story, why pleasure can't be good, why whatever the categorical imperative is can't accurately represent morality, those things, the negative things, Moore was on the money on, according to McIntyre. But then when Moore actually tried to say positive things, he's just pulling it out of his ass. He's just using the worst kind of intuitionism, because that's all that's left. If you think that the good is just this undefinable thing that can't be argued for in terms of people's purposes or desires or anything like that, then it's just, well, when I sit back and I think about what I think is really good, well, this is what I come up with. And not surprisingly, people's opinions differ on that kind of thing. And the way that the students of Moore, according to McIntyre, when they would lecture on this, it was very much they would use their own strong personalities to put forward what they thought was in proceeding with Moore's project of actually spelling out what the good things are now that Moore has done the work of defining the good, or rather saying it's indefinable, that they were emoting. So Stevenson was giving an accurate description of what Moore and his students were doing.
3: We should probably say at some point a little bit about this articulation of theory of meaning that Moore has. Because that, I think, rightly McIntyre points at as being underlying his account of ethics. And McIntyre also dismisses it as being utterly fatuous.
2: Let's finish discussing Stevenson and then Moore and then get into McIntyre.
0: So can we say it a couple sentences at the nickel tour of Stevenson and the nickel tour of Moore? Moore is chronologically first, and Stevenson actually accepts a sure. lot of what Moore has to say in it. So let's do Moore first. Okay. So the Principia Ethica, 1903, hugely influential in Britain, America at the time for the first half of the 20th century. I owned the book from some philosophy class that I took, but it's not a standard thing like utilitarianism now that everybody has to read. But I think 1950 or before, certainly, everybody would have had to slog through this. And it is a great paradigm example of what analytic philosophy looks like. (laughs) that we, We had this discussion right before the Wittgenstein episode of we're getting back into reading the analytic guys, but then Wittgenstein himself is a terrible example of that sort of clarity and spelling everything out like it's a geometry text kind of thing that analytic philosophers do, that Wittgenstein is hopeless in that respect. He reads much more like uh, at least the investigations like uh, Nietzsche, like giving these sort of aphorisms almost. So this one and the Stevenson really though, if you want to know what analytic philosophy is about, take a look at this. I also, this was the first one for me that, uh, I listened to it. Somebody had done a LibriVox recording. That's a podcast that you can get that people volunteer and they read books. So I actually listened to the whole book over the last few weeks and it's read by some guy from the Middle East. So he has cute errors in pronunciation like ideal for ideal and prejudice for prejudice and just <laughs> they're, they're all over the place. So if you've never heard some of the technical terminology before, it might make it a little more difficult. But in any case, it was one of those kind of things that I feel like audiobooks are for. The reason I use audiobooks like for novels or something is because it's something that kind of is long and sloggy. And I would probably just stop if I was just reading it, (laughs) but because somebody else is reading it to me. And in fact, I did the first chunk of it, the first chapter here on normal speed, but then I felt like, ah, no, I could go to double speed. So everything was hyper fast too. So if it wasn't giving me a headache, it actually uh, worked okay. McIntyre characterizes more as having just famously bad arguments all over the place. And some of them are Pretty miserable, but it seems like it's as good a place as any to jump into, uh, the ethical back and forth that is the outcome of the, uh, British moralists that we were talking about in the human Smith episode. There's just this series of people that have these long books and they go through all the different virtues and patience and chastity and (laughs) all that kind of stuff. And more responds to all these guys, but is focused on the meta ethics part. So it's at least a little more, uh, cut and dried than that. So the bulk of his book. Is arguing against utilitarianism and things, but in detail, responding specifically to things that Sidgwick and other guys said. But all of the groundwork is all right here in chapter one that we all read. Some of chapter one is not so useful by itself, like the stuff at the end about
1: yeah that would the sum that would be completely <laughs> un, <Yeah>. not useful. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes, but he has a whole chapter later where he's talking about how now that we know that the parts are all good, can we say that the sum of the parts is good? And sort of doing this. <laughs> You know, the the you whole reading is, is, whole, excru- is absolutely
2: excruciating.
0: <laughs> you thought so? It, I, I,
2: if it doesn't drive I, you to the edge of suicide, then you're then <laughs> you should definitely apply to your <laughs> analytic philosophy department.
0: I kind of liked it. I do think there are a lot of bad arguments in here, but at least they're more transparently bad than somebody like... Wittgenstein, who you can't tell what he's trying to say. You know what Moore is trying to say at every step of the way, because he spells it out and then he reaches the end of the chapter and he spells it out again. And yet it's not so long like some of these that you just couldn't get through it.
3: This guy was the cat's meow for more than half a century, right? This book was. Yep. Yep. Okay. So when you say something like, it's clear that it's just full of these really terrible arguments... You're also saying that a laundry list of really wicked smart people bought them, right? Yeah, I, I didn't bad arguments.
2: so I'd like to hear a little bit more
3: about that part. For instance, I have an what's, the difference, what's the difference between a really bad argument and one that you just don't agree with anymore?
2: Give your example, Mark, but I just want to say I didn't have that reaction of, oh, these are bad arguments. It's just, oh, this is just excruciatingly detailed and about things I just don't care about, that kind of reaction. <laughs>
0: well, ahead. here's the kind of thing that I had in mind, and it's not transparently bad, but given what else we've read, so this is page two, we find that many ethical philosophers are disposed to accept as an adequate definition of ethics, the statement that it deals with the question of what is good or bad in human conduct. They hold that its inquiries are properly confined to conduct or to practice. They hold that the name practical philosophy covers all the matter which has to do. Next paragraph, ethics is undoubtedly concerned with what the question of good conduct is, but being concerned with this, it obviously does not start at the beginning, unless it is prepared to tell us what is good as well as what is conduct. For good conduct is a complex notion. All conduct is not good, for some is certainly bad and some may be indifferent. And on the other hand, other things besides conduct may be good, and if they are so, then good denotes some property that is common to them and conduct. And if we examine good conduct alone of all good things, then we shall be in danger of mistaking for this property some property which is not shared by those other things. What is your reaction before I tell you what seems transparently wrong about that to me?
3: He continues on He says, this is a mistake which many writers have actually made. I find it just pompous bullshit. Every philosopher through the ages goes around saying, well, you know, they really don't understand what they're saying. I mean, this is the same argument that Socrates makes, you know. <laughs> and in that way, it's tiresome. And the fact that you, that you would have a whole section of your book saying, well... It's really because they don't really understand their terms, and they make this mistake all the time. And now, because I'm such a smart guy and I really know what's going on, that I'm not going to make that mistake. It's both a tired technique to me and one that doesn't seem to really take me as a reader seriously.
0: But it's not just a pompous introduction. He is established right there, he thinks, in those two sentences – that consequentialism is the way to approach ethics. And the way we had presented ethics in our earlier podcast is some people doing ethics are consequentialists. They start with what the good is. Some are deontologists. They start with what the right is. Some are virtue ethicists. They start with virtue. He's just saying, look, obviously because good conduct is a compound noun, (laughs) then obviously good and conduct are not the same thing. He's pointing at a verbal thing and saying that, Indicates directly what the root of the matter is and he then uses that as a bedrock principle for a whole chapter later. He dismisses rule-based approaches because obviously the best rules are going to be the ones that will produce the best outcomes most of the time. But since we can't know all the circumstances, they're at best going to be probabilistic. So anything like Kant's ethics is just out the window. Likewise, virtues. Virtue is really just whatever it is, the qualities that make us more likely to produce the most good. <laughs> Those are definitional, even though he takes himself to look how careful I'm being. I'm parsing all of the notions here. And yet he just makes this stupid mistake, which, you know, maybe this is just historical hindsight. The fact that we read the Saussure and things and say, oh, well, maybe in our language, good conduct is two words. But maybe in another language, it's just it's just one thing and actually Parsing them apart, you wouldn't talk about ice cream as also being good. You would call it something else. Good conduct is moral goodness, and that is a single irreducible term. Not that
1: I want to jump ahead, but McIntyre at least makes the effort to explain why this had such an impact. Page 16 of After Virtue. This is great silliness, of course, and he's talking about Moore's argument for good being indefinable, but it is the great silliness of highly intelligent and perceptive people. It is therefore worth asking if we can discern any clues as to why they accepted Moore's naive and complacent apocalypticism. One suggests itself. It is that the group who were to become Bloomsbury had already accepted the values of Moore's sixth chapter, but could not accept these as merely their own personal preferences. They felt the need to find objective and impersonal justification for rejecting all claims except those of personal intercourse and of those of the beautiful. McIntyre, prior to this, talks about the prioritization of the aesthetic at some point. So that's what he's referring to there. He says, what specifically were they rejecting? Not, in fact, the doctrines of Plato or St. Paul or any of the other great names in Wolfe's or Strachey's catalog of deliverance, but those names as symbols of the culture of the late 19th century. So what he's basically saying is more provided a justification and maybe an articulation of something that was in the air at the time, which was a desire to break from a certain kind of tradition, whatever that tradition was, you know, the Enlightenment, the classical tradition, what have you, and proclaim a new era that fit their cultural and aesthetic model. McIntyre's saying that because, of course, he's going to later argue that you can't divorce the language of morality from historical context And so this movement really set the stage for this 20th century abuse and misuse of terms, the language of morality, sort of abstracted from context. So we've talked about it numerous times on this podcast, where we read, what are they called? Neologisms of these philosophers making ridiculous claims about other races and, and, you know, Mm -hmm. bile. If we read Galen today, right, we'd all be laughing hysterically, I suppose. But it's indicative of something in the historical context. And that's the point that McIntyre wants to make about it.
2: Well, Moore is, there is an argument that is still taken seriously, and that is his naturalistic fallacy and open question argument. We get a little bit of it in that first chapter, I think. Moore is not just an anachronism. And I think it bothers me that McIntyre doesn't really argue against Moore and just dismisses him because it's an argument that was taken very seriously and argued about in great detail and it's not so easy to dismiss i think
3: there's some important ways it seems to me that mcintyre
1: at least practically agrees with moore
2: should we give a little summary of what moore's naturalistic fallacy thing
1: have we clearly stated what moore's position is
2: let's do that
1: so the good is indefinable right
2: well let's not just say the good is indefinable because that's kind of a consequence i think okay i mean Moore's idea is that in the tradition of ethics, people have been trying to define the good in terms of some sort of natural quality, say pleasant or the greatest happiness for the greatest number or something like that. And his idea is that that's a fallacy. So for instance, even if it were true that all pleasant things are good, that doesn't mean that the properties of good and pleasant are identical to each other. That's the fallacy. He thinks that they can't be identical because. Anytime you grant something that these properties, let's say, are coextensive, that you found something where in every case anything that is pleasant is also good. And you can still wonder whether being pleasant is the same thing as being good. You could still question that. And that questioning wouldn't mean that you're just simply incompetent with the concepts. That's a crucial step. Meaning I can know how to use good and I can know how to use the word pleasant and still wonder if they're the same thing.
0: I think it's important to say why he wants to cast this as a theory of the meaning of the word good, because the counter that everybody gives is, what if it's not a theory of meaning? What if it's about the nature of the good? But the people that he is reacting to, like Mill, did consider that the way we use the good in normal speech might be a little confused, but the project of Mill and many others was to systematize our common sense. Right. So both Mill and Kant at the end of the day said, all I'm really expressing is just what common sense tells us. It's just that common sense doesn't think in the sophisticated and universal way. And now that we've codified it, now that we can clean up the imperfections. So it really was supposed to be getting at the underlying linguistic meaning of what good or right is. It's just that, again, it's a corrective meaning. It's not just saying what the many think about it. It's improving upon it.
2: Right. It's a conceptual analysis, let's say.
0: Yes. So that's very different than what, say, a scientist is doing. Like, what is water really? I'm going to examine it and find the molecular structure. that's never been what philosophers have been trying to do with the good. It's always been some kind of conceptual analysis. Because it's our concept, we use it, you know, we, we. <laughs> I don't know what the correlation is for water. I mean, you could say like, what is the essence of, you know, like the commercial, what the essence of shaving? What is the essence of water? It's cool and refreshing and you could write a poem to express the essence of water. In that sense, you'd be a mm-hmm. conceptual analysis of water, but it's so obvious that that's different than what the scientist is doing. Yeah. So
2: Moore's basic idea is that if the good and let's say the pleasant or any other natural property you want to choose were the same thing, it would be obvious. It would be obvious through conceptual analysis and it wouldn't be a point of dispute. Just the fact that it can be a point of dispute suggests that there in fact is no identity.
3: And that turns on him categorizing what this term good means in his theory of meaning. It ends up being a term that is just different than other kinds of... It's a class of terms that don't have natural correlates, but also have a different relation to their
1: parts. Actually, he says it's a concept, not a term. Okay. Your point is still taken.
0: So you're saying the various ethical concepts have a relationship to each other. That's the part whole. But it seems the good itself, not referring to the number of individual things that are good, but the good is simple. It doesn't really have parts, right?
3: I think you're right. I I was just trying to make the point that underlying his analysis of the good is a meta-analysis of the good as an example of – a kind of concept not a term i guess mm-hmm. that there's a kind of a semiotic analysis going on for him
2: so the idea is that you can't analyze the good into a natural predicate or any a number of natural predicates and that it, it itself is non-natural right good is not a property like yellow that we find out there actually um,
1: that's i exactly mean it is like it yellow says, yes it read, is like yellow in that. it's
2: it is like yellow in its simplicity and it's unanalyzability, but it's not like yellow in being natural.
1: Yeah, it's a non-natural simple. Okay, a non-natural simple, yes. And by simple, he just means there's nothing else to which you could make recourse to explain it to somebody else. I mean, that's kind of the gist of what he's saying, is that you can't explain yellow to somebody, they just have to know what yellow is. Yeah.
3: But the key there, right, is that yellow or chocolate or other simples have sensory correlates that you can appeal to a kind of pointing. He doesn't say it this way, but you can appeal to a kind of pointing that would be characteristic of natural science and say, well, look, this is what I mean by yellow. And show, hold an example out and everybody can stand around and look at it. And you might have some discussion of the subtleties involved, but you all basically know what you're talking about. And I think he means that to be the case with the good, except... It is absent this characteristic of a being natural.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com/support.